First Peter chapter 3. Are y'all excited about summer? Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe not. That's here. Hey, our first Ignite is tomorrow night, and uh, if you would be praying for that, it's for our kindergartners through fifth grade. If you've got uh, friends of your kids, uh, we'd love for them to be here tomorrow night right here in the worship center from 7 o'clock to 8.30 for Ignite. It's camo night. Everybody got to wear camo. Isaac, you got camo? Okay, make your mom go buy you something today, okay? All right. Um, But uh, wear camo tomorrow night. So today I want to talk about the life that blesses and the life that is blessed. And we will look today that there will be kind of a final aspect of Peter's admonition to us in the role of and the aspect of submission with one another. So let me just remind us over the past month, and if you would, go to chapter 2 just for a moment of 1 Peter. And let me just remind us of kind of where we've gone. There's been a theme, almost a whole chapter's worth. It starts in the second chapter of 1 Peter, and it will end now in the middle part of chapter 3. So about a full chapter's worth of instructions about how we submit to one another in, in regard to the relationships that we have that touch our lives. And so in 1 Peter two thirteen through 17, Peter talked about that we are to be subject to, we are to be submissive to governing authorities to the government. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 through 20, he talked about the workplace environment, about half of the Roman empire at that time was enslaved to another half of the other. And so there were many, many household slaves that did the work within the home throughout the Roman kingdom. And they have come to faith. They're free on the inside. And they're trying to figure out, how do I relate to a master? I've been forgiven of my sin. I've become a believer, but I'm still a slave. I'm still owned by someone. Some of the masters were good. They were just Some of them were unjust, and so the Christ fathers were asking, how do I work in this environment? And so Peter gives instruction in regard to the relationships in the workplace environment. And then he spoke in 21 through 25 about the saints, we. How do we look to the Savior and discover how do we deal with persecution, unjust situations, things that are said to us, and he speaks in 21 through 25 about this model of Jesus. And as we come to chapter 3, he gives two specific instructions in verse 1 through 7 about marriage, and specifically not marriage in regard to both husband and wife are Christians, but one is a Christian and the other spouse is not, and so how do they relate to their spouse who is not a believer. And we talked last week, or talked really over the last couple of weeks, as the gospel went forth and throughout the Roman Empire, and it landed in places, and particularly families, many women came to faith in Christ, but their husband did not. And so from 3.1 to 3.6, Peter gives some specific instructions to a wife who has a non-believing husband and how she is to relate to him with the aim of winning him to faith. And then last week we looked at a husband who has a non-believing wife. What does he do? How does he relate to his wife who doesn't believe in Jesus? She has not trusted him. How does he serve her, love her, give his life for her, and live with her in an understanding way? The last piece that Peter has not dealt with, that we as Christ followers relate to, and it's the most important one, and that is 
What does it look like to be mutually submissive to one another within the church? How do we as Christians relate to one another in a way that glorifies God and is a God-honoring way? So Peter, in five ways, says this is what this looks like in every aspect of our lives, relationally, socially, it touches every one of these. Government, workplace, how did Jesus deal with that reality, and then family in regard to marriage, and now he's going to talk about what does it look like within the church. And let me just remind us before we read read the text this morning of this. These are persecuted Christians who have landed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to verse 1 of chapter 1. And they've landed there, and they've had to flee everywhere where they were living because of the persecution under Nero, and they have resettled. And they're asking the question, how do I relate to the world that is persecuting me? I need to know how to do that. But I also need to know, now that I've landed in this, what does it look like to relate to other believers? What are the things that are important um, to me so that I can live in a way within the church and within my relationship with other Christians in a God-honoring way? I want you to look with me in 1 Peter 3, and we're not going to study in detail chapter or verse 10. We're going to deal with that next week. We're just going to do 8 and 9 today. But I want to show you something in verse 10 because this is the theme of the five verses that we're going to look at today and next week. Look in verse 10 of 1 Peter 3. He writes this, For whoever desires to love life and see good days. Now look up here for a moment. I want to deal with that just for a moment by way of introduction this morning. So Peter's writing to people who are persecuted. They've had to leave their homes. They've fled for their lives. They've landed in a place and they're still under persecution because of the word that has come from Nero about Christians, that the Christians are the ones who had burned Rome. He had blamed them, and they were forced to flee, and they've landed in this, and they are resettling, getting their work going again, getting their family going again, getting the education of their children going again, uh, getting reconnected in a new church, or maybe even starting a new church because they fled to a new place. And Peter, in the midst of, right, in, in the midst of this reality, writes to persecuted believers And he writes these words, and it's a common theme, I think, for all of us. We can relate to it this morning. We want to know, how do I love life and enjoy life and have joy in life? And how do I see that the days in which I live on the earth are good days? We see one another from time to time. We say, hey, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Do we really think through what we're saying and communicating to people? All of us in this room this morning can relate to what Peter writes in verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, what does that look like? What does it consist of? All of us want that reality to be true in our lives. And I believe what naturally, what persecuted people desire is, they want to love life. How do I deal with this reality? I'm being persecuted for my faith. I've lost my home and I've had to flee How do I love life and how do I see good days in the midst of that? How do I see good days when my relationships are crumbling? How do I see see good days when there's sickness that's here that's a part of my life? So how do we look at life in such a way that cuts through the difficulty of life that causes so much trouble and heartache for us? What does that look like? Well, if we're not careful as Christ followers... 
we will get caught up in the ways of the world and we will think good days and loving life are consisted of some things that are okay, not anything inherently wrong with them, but it's not really what makes up life. And I thought of a few of them this week. And I don't know, I don't know if you watched the news this week, um, but the, the famous people and pop- popular people and people who get to travel the world and they were on TV, the rate and the rise of suicide among those people is dramatically increasing. And I want to show some things this morning before we look at Peter's instruction that I think are really important to us. They are reminders to us of what life is made up of and what is consisted of. See, we're told if you have enough money, then you will have a good life and you will see good days. And yet we look at those who have millions and millions of dollars and get to travel the world and get to have homes all over the world and they are hanging themselves in hotel rooms. Because inside, they're finding out, I've got all this stuff, and I can travel, and I can do, and yet, there's something deep inside of me that can't, it's restless, and it can't be satisfied, and my only option is to take my life and to remove myself from this world. Some people say, if you want to see good days and, and love life, then you've got to have a dream job. You've got to, you've got to live the dream, follow the dream. Uh, experience the dream and just pursue it. And if you've got the dreams, all of your dreams, when they come true, then you will find things to be satisfying. And that's not always the case. For these believers, they could have been thinking, if I can get to a place where I'm free from persecution, then that's, for me, is living the dream. That's the good life because it's been really, really difficult. Or somebody might say, if I had better status socially, you know, within the business world or within my sphere of influence or where my relationships are, life would be better for me. And I want to show you something that just reminds us today that nothing new, there's nothing new under the sun. That what we see today is what's been taking place since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. I want you to go to the Old Testament just for a moment. Second Chronicles chapter 9. I shared this with the students on Wednesday night, but it's uh, important to hear Second Chronicles chapter 9. Solomon is king over Israel. And he has unbelievable wisdom. He has this great reputation. He has riches. Everything. There's a queen, Queen of Sheba. And she comes to Jerusalem to see Solomon. Second Chronicles chapter 9 verse 1. Look what it says here. It says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon... She came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions. She was wondering about life, and she, wanted, she thought, Solomon maybe can answer some of the questions that I have. Having a great retinue and camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And she came with all those to Solomon, and she told him all that was on her mind. She just let it come out. Solomon, these are my questions. And Solomon was stumped by none of them. Verse 2 says, Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from Solomon that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, she saw the house that he had built. This is the temple. The food of his table. The seating of his officials. The attendance of all of his servants. Their clothing. His cupbearers and their clothing. And his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. She was so blown away by it that the last part of verse 5 says, it literally took her breath away. She just looked at the magnificence of Solomon, and she just 
just could not fathom that somebody had all of this stuff, that somebody was so wise, so rich, so insightful, so purposeful, someone who had such a future. She literally could not fathom, and it took her breath away, the magnificence of Solomon. But I have to ask the question this morning, that's what her perspective of Solomon was. What was Solomon's perspective of his own life and that he had come to? And I want you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 just for a moment. And Solomon's going to share with us, this is how I saw whatever, what took the breath away from the queen of Sheba. This is what I thought of it all. She thought it was magnificent. And so in chapter 2, Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. And I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? And I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. By the way, just stop here for a moment. This phrase, under heaven, in the book of Ecclesiastes, is this. Solomon decided... And you can see it in chapter 1. If I leave God out of the picture, can I answer the true questions of life? That's under heaven. If I leave God, God's in heaven. If I leave God out of the picture, can I through wine and possessions and sex and, and fame and, and vineyards and houses, can I find the answers to the questions of life? Can I find the meaning of life? So here's what he says in verse 4. So he says, I made great works, I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. Verse 6, I made myself pools from which water to water the forests of the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I um, had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. And that wasn't enough. I needed music. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. And not only did I have many wives, but I had concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Verse 9 says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and also my wisdom remained with me. So he left God out of the picture, and yet his wisdom, his insight about life, remained with him. Look at verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, whatever he laid his eyes on, he said, I did not keep from them. And I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. And then he says, I considered, verse 11, all that my hands had done and the toil that I experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let me just stop there for a moment. So, so the queen of Sheba comes and she pours out her mind with her, with her mouth, from her mind to her mouth, this is, this is what I'm wondering about. Solomon just answered everything. She looked at his servants, the house, the gold, the sacrifices, the burnt offerings, and she just, I, I can't breathe. You are so magnificent. And yet when Solomon surveyed his life, he said, she can't catch a breath. And everything that I've got is like trying to catch the wind. And you can't catch the wind. And he surveyed his life. And look at verse 17. This is what Solomon said. So I hated life. 
Because what is done under the sun, leaving God out of the picture, was grievous to me for all his vanity, striving after the wind. Now go to 1 Peter 3. I want to remind us this morning that our world is going to tell us to go for those things that Solomon says, I own them, I had them, I experienced them, I could give them away. It says a little bit later in 2 Chronicles 9 that whatever the Queen of Sheba asked for, Solomon gave to her. He had so much riches, he could say, hey, what do you want? You want that? Okay, here, you can have that. He just was able to give it away. And yet he said, that's not good days. That's not loving life because I am empty. And so Peter is going to say to us today, this is what this looks like. This is what good days look like. This is what loving life looks like. So look with me, 8 and 9 of 1 Peter. So Peter writes to these believers and he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and an humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That's what we want. We want the eyes of the Lord on the righteous, living out his purposes. And God's ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we're going to look at that text both these weeks. And this morning we'll look at the text in verse 8 and 9. Let me start with this this morning. There is a righteous call for all believers. So Peter writes these words. He says, finally, not finally the end of the book, but finally this end of what I've been talking to you about, about being submissive to one another in relating to government, the workplace, Looking at the Savior, He's the model for us. And in your marriage, here is what this looks like. And I want to close with this finally, is that this also has to be a part of the church. It has to be a part of how a Christian relates to another Christian. And that's what the word finally means. He's concluding everything that he's been talking about. And he's going to deal with the church and the relationships in here. And in these simple five verses that we'll look at today and next week, they form the foundation, listen to this, for vital Christian living. And it's not about accumulating. It's about living and being blessed by walking in the commands of God. And so this section is going to deal with practical living, of living at our faith in light of the glory of God, in light of the inheritance that has come to us in a God-honoring way. So this is counsel, listen to me, for real, practical, day-to-day Christianity. And if we're not going to seek to live these truths, then all of our doctrine is just talk. Because the things we know must impact how we live and how we love and how we relate to one another because those doctrinal things have substance and the substance is designed that would bring us to a place of living out the abundance of God's purposes for us. So in these verses, Peter's going to tell us how to love life, how to see good days, and it's going to come through how we love and relate to one another. Again, remind us, 
these believers were suffering persecution. Paul wrote this to Timothy, and he reminded Timothy of, the, of this, 2 Timothy 3.2. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he says, they will be persecuted. So if you want to walk passionately with God, you want to walk intimately with God, people are going to talk negatively about your faith. We saw back in chapter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, so Peter writes, so that when they accuse you of being evildoers, not if they do, but when they accuse you of being people who are strange and who are different, who worship this weird God who died, and it's about all of this stuff, and, and when they say these things about you, they'll, over time, see your good deeds, and they will glorify God on the day that they come to faith, on the day of visitation, because of the influence that you will have in their lives. And so, so he The call is, in the midst of persecution, it's going to come, but you keep your conduct in a really, really important way. So so I want to remind us, I want you to go back to chapter 1 just for a moment, and I want to remind us of what has come to us, what Peter has told us, uh, has come to us, and I I want us to look at verse 3, and we're going to read through verse 9, and I want to remind us of the great hope we have in the midst of persecution in the midst of lack of understanding from the world and this is what peter writes blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by god's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, that's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now look up here, church. That right there ought to cause us right now to just stand up where we are and just shout. This world, everything can be taken. Health, Spouse, job, car, child, like that. Did y'all hear Friday, Thursday night about the man who died down here at the baseball field? I went to high school with him. His younger brother was my best friend my sophomore year. And just like that, he's sitting in his Corvette on Thursday night after his son's baseball practice, I think it was, and a tree fell over and landed on him. He was in a Corvette, and he died right there. This life is unexpected. It is sudden. And so, if something like that were to happen, whatever the case may be, because we know Jesus, because we are in a relationship with Him, we have this hope that you can take world stuff, you can take my breath away, but I belong to Him. I have an inheritance that is in heaven, that is undefiled, it's imperishable, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for me. It's being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And so in this we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, we are grieved by various trials. 
Because we want our faith to be tested. We want it to be genuine. Because what happens is this, is it becomes a place where it becomes our life. And it becomes our life expression and the passion of our lives. And so Peter is telling these believers, listen, finally, all of you, I want to remind you, all of you, this is not for the pastor. This is not for the music man. This is not for the children. This is not for the discipleship pastor. This is for all of you. This is what it looks like to live out this great hope that is connected to your inheritance. And it is in submitting one to another to walk in the truth of God's word and to follow God in a passionate way. And so he says, all of you live this way. All of you live this way. Not, hey, I hope they do, but I want to live this way and I've got to do it. So how do we do that? And he calls them righteous attitudes. So it is a righteous call for everyone, for all believers to live out this. And then he says, you've got to have some attitudes that are really important, and here are the attitudes. Look in verse, second part of verse 8. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and an humble mind. Let's walk through these five for a moment. Y'all with me? You want to see good days. Do you want a good life? It's not going to come from a better bank account. That's just all temporary. But if you want to see good days, then we are to live out these things that he speaks about here by not being focused on us, but being focused on others. And the first thing he says here is this. Here is what good days look like. That within the church, within the local body of believers, as we relate to one another, he says this. Have unity of mind. In other words, be like-minded. Now let me talk about what this is not. Because churches have literally split over some of the dumbest things in the history of the world. We are not always going to have unity of mind on what color carpet or what color walls we're going to paint. I mean, look at us. We're schizophrenic in our chairs. We've got, we've got gray chairs in there as well. That No, we sold the gray chairs, Mark, didn't we? Did we? We didn't sell them. They're all in there. So for a while there, if you remember, we like had three different color chairs. We actually had four different color chairs. Because we've got other green chairs in there as well. So we're not always going to agree on that. And we're not going to fight over that. And we're not going to lose fellowship over that. So the call is this. Not do we have Bermuda or St. Augustine that we plan outside. Are we going to have a playground? Are we going to fight over not having a playground? Are we going to argue about this thing or that thing? We're not going to argue about things like that, because you'll never come to agreement. So the call here, he says, is this, and this is within the local body, he says, listen, you've got to come on the things that matter, like doctrine, like sanctification, like salvation through faith alone, not works. The really key things, is Jesus coming back? Yeah, he's coming back. And so we're not saying that he's not going to come back. We agree on the things that really, really matter, there must be a unity of mind and agreement on those things. Now, sometimes, even with some of those things that really, really matter, there are some different perspectives on things. We know Jesus is coming back, but within the church and with some really, really smart people, some of them have different views as to, okay, when's the millennial kingdom going to happen? Is it a literal thousand years? 
Is it just a figurative thousand years? Is he going to come at the end? Is he going to come in the middle? Is he going to come at the beginning? So there's some things like that that we may not always see completely right, but the fundamental foundational things. Can you get salvation by works? No, we don't agree with that. We believe salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus. We believe in water baptism, not that it saves you, but as an expression of what Christ has done in you, we believe that to be immersion, not sprinkling. Now, some people would say, um, <clears throat> is that really that big a deal? Well, for us at this church is, we've agreed that what we're going to do, and we think the Scripture teaches, it is immersion. Other churches do something else. And if that's a, there's sometimes within the faith where you have to come to, you know, I, I can't fully agree with that. And if that's the case, then you never cause a problem in the church you are. Then you pray about, God, are you calling us to move on? And if that's the case, then you move on to something like that. The call here is come to a place on the things that really matter and come to a place of unity on those things. So he says, If you want to, again, the theme of all of this is you want to see good days. You want to live life that's good, that's pleasing to God. He says, first of all, listen, you have unity of mind on the things that matter. That means if you're a teacher at LifePoint here with our kids or with our students or even with the life group, this is not, those are not places to introduce new ideas about doctrine. We have an idea about doctrine at this church. And if you want to teach beyond that, then you're not going to get to teach here. That's just the way it is. And that's not a negative thing. There is a call to unity because if you don't, you start battling over the things that aren't important or you're fighting over the things that are clearly important and someone's trying to take away of those things that truly, truly matter. The New Testament is full of examples of get along with one another let me just share jesus's prayer in the upper room in john 17 21 he says this i pray that they may be all one just as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be in us so that the word um, so that the world may believe that you have also sent me acts 4 32 talks about the early church and it says this about them they were of one heart and soul they weren't fighting over different things 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. 1 Corinthians 3.3, for you are still of the flesh. You are behaving only in a human way. Paul in Ephesians 4.2 and 3 says, with all humility and genuineness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul in Philippians 1.27, Stand firm together in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So this call to like-mindedness is more than just one that's desirable but it's one that we're going to fight for and we're going to strive to accomplish. And it's more important than sin and self-importance. There is to be a unity and a like-mindedness. And by doing so, Peter says, listen, you're going to experience good days. 
It's very important to not be a divisive person in the church. Whether it's our personality or personal preferences of things and how we want to get things done, there are things, again, to fight for, and there are things that sometimes just to let them go. Y'all with me, you know? Just like we got coffee out there now. For a long time, I made an executive decision. I was done with coffee at the church. You know why? Because too many people were getting up to go to the bathroom, and it was distracting during the sermon. I have acquiesced and gave in, and we have coffee now. We're not going to fight over that. And if we decide we're getting rid of coffee, we need to be okay with that, do we not? Church is not about coffee. Is it okay to have coffee? Absolutely. But if we have it, take it away, bring it back, take it away. Every other year we do that. We need to be okay about it because that's not something that's eternal, not something that's essential. So the call here is good life is connected to coming to an agreement of things. A great biblical example of this. In Genesis chapter 13, Abraham and Lot. Lot is Abraham's nephew. And they've come to the land of Canaan, the land that's been promised. And Abraham is rich. He's got herds. Lot has a lot of herds. And one day, the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot are out together, and they have too many cattle, too many goats, too many sheep, and they all can't live in the same place because it was destroying the land. And so a fight came out between the two herdsmen. So when Abraham heard about it, he went to Lot and he said, Hey, Lot, and Abraham, again, he's the one through whom the promise was going to come through. He's the greater man. He said to Lot, he said, Hey, Lot, we're not going to fight over where your animals graze and where mine graze. And so here's what I'm telling you, Lot. You decide where you want to graze yours, and I'll go to another place. Because we're not going to fight over this. This is Genesis chapter 13. So Lot chose poorly he chose to get close to Sodom and Gomorrah and it eventually cost him because he chose that but he chose to go there and Abraham chose to go some other place sometimes in our lives listen folks sometimes in our lives we just need to if we're if we've got the power we've got the influence we've got the more things sometimes we just say I'm not going to fight over this I'm not fighting over this you decide And I'll do this, and you do that, and we'll have an agreement about that, because that's not that important. So he says this. You want to live, you want to love life, you want to see good days, you have a unity of mind. Then he says, and you live sympathetic to other people. Here's what this word sympathetic, in the Greek it's made up of two words. It means to be affected by, it's the first word. The second word is to feel or to have emotions stirred up by a circumstance or a reality. So here's what Peter says. You want, to see, you want to see good days. You want to love your life. You have unity of mind. You stand for the things that matter and, and have an agreement on those things. You're not going to fight over the things that, that don't matter. And, and then he says this, and you be sympathetic with one another. In other words, it means this. You feel the pain and the joy of what other believers are dealing with and going through. Literally, this word in the Greek means have fellow feelings for what another believer is dealing with. Paul wrote this, Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Galatians 6, 2. 
bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all should rejoice together. Watch this. Peter says, good days are connected this way of feeling what other people are feeling. If it's pain, struggle, or promotion at a job, we rejoice with them. Being able to hire more employees at your business, we rejoice with how God is blessing something like that. We rejoice with believers when they are blessed and we feel what they feel when they are going through pain. We are to feel the things that other people are going through as if they are our very own. And that, what Peter says is, that's what it looks like to see good days. That's what it looks like to love life. And here's the thing. Sympathy and selfishness cannot coexist together. They can't. Sympathy and selfishness cannot coexist together because when self is exalted, sympathy is gone. And so we want to feel what other people feel That is the call here. And this is the attitude, this is the idea, this is an intentional thing that we are called to. You've probably seen this before. You get some people together who have gone through a common struggle together or or they've gone through it at different times and they get in a room together. There's a unity there. Pam had a follow-up appointment with the oncologist um, uh, from her cancer this past week. And it's amazing when you go into an oncology ward, or not a, I don't know ward's the right word, but those of you who have gone through this, you know this. There is something in that room that even though everybody has a different type of cancer, there's a unity that everybody in there knows and understands together. And there's a camaraderie. And we just sat down with people that we had never seen before in our lives, and we just start talking because there's something that's there. So sometimes as believers, the common struggles we have with other people just increase the intimacy that we have with them because we've gone through something that's the same. And so that's rejoicing. That's also struggling. You know, Jesus was unbelievably sympathetic. Listen to, these, listen to this. This is Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus gets temptation he gets it he understands it he experienced it he knows it and he feels it and that is what's great for me when i think about what the scripture writes that he ever lives to intercede for us we have somebody interceding for us who never sinned never gave into the temptation yet he understands temptation as a matter of fact you know i don't know if you know this jesus understands temptation and sin way better than you and i do we give in to temptation and sin. He never gave in to it. So he always knows what the answer is, the rescue in regard to temptation, in regard to sin. And he lives to intercede for us. And so the call here is we've got a high priest who gets our life. And we now are to be like him. When he suffered, it says this, that he did not revile And when he suffered, he did not threaten. That's what Peter wrote in chapter 2. So we look at the model of Jesus, and we feel what other people feel, and we are called 
to feel what other people feel. So we're to be like-minded, we are to be sympathetic, and we are to have brotherly love. We are to love the family of God. This word here is Philadelphia in the Greek, and it means brotherly love. We are to be brethren and sistren. I don't know if sistren's a word, but we're going to make it a word. We're to be brethren and sistren who are loving to and for one another. Here's some words. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you belong to me. You're my disciples if you have love for one another. John, 1 John three fourteen, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Love brings you into life, Peter says in the church. But if you don't want to love then you're going to abide in death. In verse 15, 1 John three fifteen. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, for you know that mo- no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And he's stressing the importance that we love the people of God. 1 John four twenty. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And throughout the history, the church sometimes has erred on the side of doctrine. Not erred. Stood so strong on doctrine, which is important. But we've forgotten that we also have to stand on love. Are there, is there anybody in your life that's hard to put up with at times? <laughs> Yeah. You know, you learn about love not when everything's perfect. You learn about love when you wrestle with stuff. And you learn to love in that way. So there's a great challenge to love. And so he says, listen, you want to see good life? You want to see good days? Have unity of mind. Be sympathetic. Feel what people feel. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And you love the family of God. You know, love can be an emotion, but love really is a choice. It's what it really is when it comes down to it. And so sometimes we just have to choose. We do that with our children. We do that with our spouse at times. Boy, I don't like you right now, but I'm choosing to love you. And I'm going to love you, and I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to be here, and I'm going to be sympathetic. I'm going to be merciful. Fourthly, You've got to have a tender heart, he says. Tender hearted. This Greek word means, y'all ready for this? Tender hearted. Tender hearted means tender hearted. That's what it means in the Greek. It means to have a heart of pity. A Christian is not to have a cold, hard heart that's not joyful, that's not understanding. It is to be sympathetic toward the feelings of others. There is no Christianity without compassion. Compassion drives us as believers, feeling and knowing what other people have gone through. Peter, in describing to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, said this about Jesus. Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And what Peter's telling Cornelius was this. Jesus went out in his world and with his life, and he did good with the gospel. 
And as you leave today, I've got something on the little board above the doors that says this, go do good with the gospel. This week, go do good with the gospel. Just like Jesus, everywhere he went, he did what was good. He prayed for people. He ministered to people. He spent time with them. He listened to their hurts. Matthew 9 tells us that when he saw the crowds at the end of Matthew 9, he had compassion for them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were oppressed. They'd been beaten down. And we are like Jesus that Peter says, we are to do good with the gospel. There is to be a tender heart inside of us for others. That means this, that when people who are believers maybe go through something, we don't do this in our mind. Ah, serves them right. Or there's a part of us that is pleased that some pain has come to somebody. That is never to mark our faith. Our faith is to be marked by feeling what other people feel, loving people, doing good with the gospel. Jesus was not that way. We were born in sin and rebellion. Paul writes this, There is none righteous, no, not one, no one. So there was nothing before we came to faith that we could offer God other than, I hate you, God. My nature hates you, hates your word. And what did he do? He loved us. He chose to love us. And so we are to do the same. There's to be tenderness in our faith. And then he says this, and you have a humble mind. You have a humble mind. This word here means to have an accurate view and opinion of yourself. Why should we have a humble mind and an accurate view of ourselves? Well, one is this. Sometimes we just need to be reminded we are literally nothing without him. We may think we're pretty impressive. We're not. We are nothing without Him. And everything we've been, we have, He has given to us. And then we also have to remember, remember the reason we don't think too highly of ourselves is that Jesus is our standard, not others. Now, if I compare myself to Mark Donahoe or to Paul Davis or Chris Nix, I can feel good about myself because I'm better than those men. I can just feel really, really good about things. I didn't hear any amens. <laughs> as long as I'm comparing myself to other people, I lower my standard and I can kind of feel good about things. But when I compare myself to the standard Jesus, I'm always reminded I am nothing without Him. I'm nothing without Him. I am so short of the mark of who He is. And so I've got to have a humble mind in the body of Christ as I love other people because with, without Him I'm nothing and that He's my standard. It's not other people. Paul said it like this, Romans twelve sixteen: Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Don't think highly of yourself, but associate with the lowly and never, listen to what Paul says, never be wise in your own sight. Do not be one of those people who always knows more than everybody else, always has the better answer, always is more insightful. Listen to other people, and sometimes we might learn something. So he says, listen, don't. He's, Paul says it, never be wise in your own sight. Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Colossians 3, 12, put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassion, hearts, kindness, 
humility, meekness, and patience. James 4, 6. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourselves. Tenderhearted, humility, look at all those up on the screen. These are the attitudes. Like-minded about what matters. Feeling sympathetic what others feel. Loving the family of God. Tender-hearted. Humble mind, humility, not thinking too highly of ourselves. And then he says this, thirdly, we've got to refrain from retaliation. And so he says, do not repay evil for evil, nor reviling for reviling. So evil for evil is an action. Somebody slaps you on one cheek, you don't slap them. What do you do? Jesus said you turn the other cheek. Someone does this, you don't know, I'm getting back. They keyed my car, I'm keying their car tonight when they're at the movies. They egged my house, I'm going to egg their house. I still owe the Hubbards, they're not in here. The Hubbards wrapped my house one time. I've always told them, I'm going to come wrap your house one time. I should forgive that I had to spend hours. Were you there that night, R.C.? You came, okay, R.C. was not there. Yeah, because I, I may retaliate against you. Okay, anyway. Oh, yeah, Randy's back there. Yeah, you did it. There you are. You did it. Yeah. So he says, listen, don't repay evil for evil in action. And don't revile. Revile is words spoken that are designed to cut. So when somebody cuts you with words, don't cut them back. Romans twelve seventeen, Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought, listen to what Paul says, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Somebody does something in our nature, our natural nature is to do what? I'm getting you back for that. Paul says, you think about when they've done something to you, about doing something that's a blessing. You do something that's a blessing. So he says, watch your words. Watch your actions. And fourthly, he says, live contrary. Resist the cultural norms. Resist your nature that just wants to pay back. And so he says, listen, don't pay back evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, you do something different. And what you do is bless. This word bless is the word eulogy. We all know what eulogy means. It means to speak a blessing or a praise about someone and to celebrate. It means to invoke blessings on them or to ask God's blessing on something or on someone else. So watch this. We are not to be a person that when we are seen by other people in the workplace or at the church or some other place, and, and they see you and I coming, that on the inside they're going, oh, what are they going to be upset about now? What's the complaint going to be now? We should be the kind of people that when we approach other people, they think this, what kind of blessing are they going to speak to my life today? 
how are they going to encourage me today? So Peter says, listen, you want to see good days, you want to love life, you be the kind of person who's not retaliating, but you do this, you bless, you speak praise of people. And that means, and I've had to do this in my life. Did you know that church people can be mean? You ever heard that? They can be mean. And I've had some of the most awful things in my life said to me. And I've just had to sometimes go, thank you for that. I'm, I, will you pray for me? You know, I, I, I need help, and I'm serious about it. And, and, and sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, and sometimes you just, you just have to say, I'm gonna lo- I need to learn from this. I need to learn from this, and I need to speak a blessing. Because that's what we're, he says this. <clears throat> On the contrary, live differently, don't retaliate. You bless, because fifthly, for to this you were called. Realize we are called to be the kind of people who bless, not retaliate, not the kind of person that people dread being around, but we see life as a blessing. Therefore, we know that because life is a blessing, I am going to be a blessing, and I'm going to speak the blessing to other people. And because we've been so blessed by God, that's the kind of people that we must be. Lastly, he says this, there's a reward for the righteous response. Not retaliating, but being a blessing. And he says this, listen, don't pay back evil for evil. Don't revile for reviling. Don't do that. On the contrary, you bless. For to this you have been called. Earlier in Peter he said this. He said, listen, you've been called to suffer. We are called to suffer. It's a reality to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Not only that, but there's a call upon our life to be a blessing and to get a blessing. Do you want to bless life? Do you want to love life and see good days? then this is what Peter says. This is what it looks like. You know what all these things do? It takes the emphasis off us and it puts the emphasis on how can I take care of other people? And you know what happens in our life? If we take the, God, nobody's noticing me. Nobody's talking to me. Does nobody know what's going on with me? If we would love each other biblically, like it says here, then in the midst of our struggle, we would never be saying, nobody's doing something for me we would be thinking of other people and as we're thinking of other people other people are thinking about us and there's this aspect of this weaving together of our love for one another that nobody has missed now do some people get missed from time to time yeah there's no perfect church there's no perfect life group there's no perfect this but the call is to do this this is how you see good days and you love life let me close with this Let me give you a biblical example. The king of Syria had come through marching through Israel, conquering and capturing. One of the instances they came through, they picked up this little girl, this little Israeli girl. We're not, not, not for sure how old the Jewish girl was, but the king of Syria had captured her and she became a servant in the captain of the Syrian army's house, whose name was Naaman. 
And she could have thought to herself, mean Syrians came through, destroyed my town, took me away from my parents, and now I'm living in a foreign land with this guy Naaman. And she saw something about Naaman. There was something about his life. So she could have felt sorry for herself. She could have said, I'm just going to... I'm going to be mean to Naaman and his wife and his family and I'm not going to work hard because they have done mean to me and I'm going to retaliate. But she noticed something about Naaman one day. Naaman had what? He had leprosy. And so listen to what the scripture says about this little Jewish girl. This is 2 Kings 5.1. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And one day, she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord, my Lord, a term of respect for the one that had captured her. Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, the king, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, hey, you go and I'll send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So Naaman goes to the king of Israel and says, hey, I've come from the king of Syria and I want you to heal me. And the king of Israel just kind of freaks out. He says, I don't have anything to do it. Elisha hears about it. And Elisha says, hey, king, don't worry about this, king of Israel. Don't worry about this. Let me talk to him. And so he tells Naaman, if you'll go and you'll wash in the river seven times, you'll be healed. And Naaman says, we've got better rivers back in Syria. Why do I have to go to this river? And so he's not even going to go dip himself in the river. And his servants came and say, hey, Naaman, listen. Why don't you listen to the man of God and do what he says? So Naaman goes to the river. He dips himself seven times in the river and he's cured of his leprosy. Watch this. That would have never happened if a little Jewish girl had said, I'm going to retaliate against the man who took me from my home. And you know, in all of our lives, there's been somebody along the way that was a little Jewish girl like her. They told us of the one who could cleanse us of our sinful leprosy. And because we've been rescued from that, we now live in a way that Peter talks about here. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathetic. You've got to love the brethren. You've got to be tender-hearted. You've got to be humble of mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. No, On the contrary, you bless. For to this you have been called, that you may obtain a blessing. That's how you live life and love it and see good days. Next week we'll talk more about that. Let's pray.